avoided an explosion of the euro area, which was possible. The exit of Greece in November 2011 was not something which was impossible and it happened again. So I think we were successful to maintain the integrity of the euro area, which I think is an asset and a big support in troubled times. We are talking now in 2022 when 10 years later we see we have war in Europe. And we see also, I guess, that exiting from the European group provides probably more problems than answers. I'm thinking of my British friends. Welcome back to In The Room. This is the second in a series of conversations with top officials who were in the room when critical decisions were made to build, rescue, expand or even dismantle the European Union. Today I'm talking to Ramon Fernandez. We met at the headquarters of Orange, where he is now the deputy CEO. But what I wanted to talk about was his previous life as an economic advisor to President Nicolas Sarkozy as the global financial crisis broke, and then as director general of the French Treasury during the critical years of 2009 to 2014. As the head of Treasury, he was the lead French delegate to all official level meetings during the financial and debt crises, working closely with German officials and with advisors and ministers who went on to greater things. Emmanuel Macron, for example, and Christine Lagarde. We talked about the wave-like nature of the long crisis, um, early contingency planning for what was coming in Greece, very early, the delicate management of the Franco-German tandem, the 2010 accident at Deauville, the 2011 dressing down in Cannes, and the trade-offs between governments and the European Central Bank, among many other things. However, I had to start the conversation by delving into his unusual family background. Anyway, I bring you Ramon Fernandez. Well, unavoidably, I have to begin with some of your distant past because you have such an interesting family background. Could you give us some of the story about your family background? Oh, the family background is, I would say, split between diplomats and writers. So my parents write books. They're still writing books? Well, my father is still writing books. He was born in 1929, so he's 93 years old, but extremely active. The next book will be next spring on the Soviet Union literature. And a lot, I think, will be interesting to read about Zamyatin and Grossman and many others. And my mother, she stopped writing because she cannot see anymore, basically. So these, and then you have a lot of ascendants, which were also in the business of literature including Edmond Rostand with Cyrano de Bergerac, which is a grand uncle of my mother. And then you have diplomats. My grandfather was an ambassador to Germany who negotiated the Traité de l'Elysée in 1963. We will be celebrating the 50th birthday next year. And his own father was also an ambassador to Germany. And both of them were head of the cabinet of prime ministers when the war started in 1914 and 1940. So it's an interesting family. <laughs> yeah, with a huge European background, but also some Mexican. In Yes, I have the name of the father of my father. He was born Mexican and his own father was also a diplomat, but from Mexico. Right. And as a boy, I've read that you were passionate about literature and cinema. How did you switch to administration? At what age did you have this passion for government? 
Well, as I said, a big part of the family was coming from, let's say, diplomacy. So I, you know, I had a traditional Sciences Po ENA background for civil servants in France. And when I went out of the uh, ENA school, I would say the hazard of life brought me to the Ministry of Finance in the Treasury. So I started to work there in 1993. And I've spent 21 years in the Treasury and in some satellite places, cabinets or the IMF at some point for two years. For anyone outside France, I can't avoid asking questions about the ENA because it's quite a legendary school. Could you give us some background as to how big was your year? Who else was in your year that we may have heard of? Well, I was there in ENA. I entered in 1989. Then I had a one year of military service because at the time military service was mandatory in France. And when you entered into this school and had not done your military service, you would go. So I spent 1990 the year in, in the army. And then ENA between 91 and 93. I guess it's a promotion which is less famous than the one of Emmanuel Macron, which was a few years later. And so my colleagues are very bright, but a bit less famous than the president and his team. <laughs> and you chose against going into the Inspection Générale de, de Finance? No, no, I didn't choose. You know, you have a kind of ranking. And so the first part of the promotion, I mean, the top at the time, 20 out of 100 could go in what you call les grands corps, including Inspection des Finances. And I was just after this punch. And so I went to the Treasury. And I, I mean, again, I read that years later when you became Director of Treasury, it was a bit of an issue with some people that you hadn't been an inspector. It was no, I don't think so, honestly. I was not the first one, I was not the first director du Trésor not being inspector des finances. Michel Cantu, for instance, or Christian Noyer were not inspector des finances, so I don't think there was an issue, honestly. Okay, yes, yeah, just the tittle-tattle. Um, well, you then, as you said, you went into some satellites. One of the satellites was the private office, the cabinet of President Sarkozy in mm -hmm. 2007. How does that come about? Did you have a political flag? Were you considered to be on the centre-right? How does it work? Yes, I was seen as, I would say, centre-right. I had been in the cabinet of Finance Minister Francis Maire in 2002-2003 with Xavier Muscat and François Perrol. And so it was François Perrol who called me after the election of Nicolas Sarkozy in 2007, proposing to join the cabinet. I had not been participating to the campaign, but... I was happy to join. At the time, I was deputy director in the Treasury. And it was a fantastic opportunity to be the economic advisor of the president. And this is how I went there. Looking back, I, I mean, you were the economic advisor to the president. And there were such great hopes for that presidency in 2006 and then going into 2007. Are you disappointed by the record of the government in economic terms? No, I think... You know, Nicolas Sarkozy was elected in spring 2007, and in early August 2007, the crisis began, in fact. Nobody knew it would be such a big crisis, but some issues started in early August. There was already a letter to the G7 in very early August from Nicolas Sarkozy. And Lehman Brothers, of course, one year later, triggered a massive acceleration of a crisis. But... The start of the presidency of Sarkozy was already impacted by the very early signs of the crisis. And I think a lot was done, was done at the time. France is a complicated country to govern. And I guess the years of this quinquennat were not so bad. 
Well, we're coming to the crisis now, which is what yes. I really want to cover. And again, I've read that in 2008, when Lehman Brothers collapsed, you and Xavier Muscat were central to the crisis management at the time, that you basically didn't have any holidays or time off. Could you give us some of the colour of that period? Well, my time, in fact, I was with the president from spring 2007 to very early April 2008. But then I joined as a head of a cabinet of a labor minister. So when Lehman collapsed, I was not anymore in Nicolas Sarkozy's office. I was working with a labor minister, which was not obviously in charge of managing the Lehman crisis. So in fact, I had a little parenthèse of a bit less than a year working on social affairs, which I think was a fantastic experience for me. But I was not on the front line for this time, for the uh, Lehman Brothers. Mm. I've seen the start from August 2007. And then I jumped back when I was nominated head of the French Treasury in March 2009. But the early start and the Lehman part of the crisis, I was not in it. At the beginning of the crisis, did you and the people around you have any inkling of the scale of the thing and how long it would continue and the domino effect it would have? Well, I think we saw in the first half of, well, in fact, the second half of 2007 that it was quite bad. Not as bad as it became, but already quite bad. And this is why you had these letters to G7 once again on you know, credit rating agencies, on regulation, on a number of issues which appear already to be problematic. Then it accelerated massively. But it was clear that it would be an important problem as early as summer 2007. And how did you feel at that time about the level of European cooperation? Certainly from the outside, the impression was given that it was a little bit every man for himself. And then when things got extremely bad, they'd be coming together, for example, around the Paris summit. Is that how it felt inside? You know, when we had to manage these crises, you had times where national interests were dictating the approach of the political leadership. And then the more the heat was becoming obvious, the more it was evident that there was no alternative than to build joint solutions. And it's basically the story of what happened during all these years until, you know, 2012, 2014, a constant balance between national interests and a collective approach, which was the only way out of a crisis. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll certainly come back to that in the later questions. But as you said, in spring 2009, you became Director General of the Treasury. And fairly quickly, the Greek crisis started to develop. And I've heard there were some high-level meetings, constrained meetings, in 2009 before the real depth of the crisis became evident Can we drill into some of those? Were you involved in those? And how early were some of these discrepancies around Greece's finances spotted? Yeah, well, I took my position in the Treasury in March 2009. And at the time, there was already a working group, selected working group, watching what was happening in Greece. So nobody had a precise image of the exact reality of the fiscal situation in Greece. But there was a deep sense that something was worse than the official figures and that it was needed to prepare for something. 
And this was already in place in 2009. And in fact, in spring 2009, became a more regular working group with the Euro Working Group, the Commission, the ECB, and a few big countries, I would say. So this was just top principles involved in this? Yes. How many in that group? Oh, not so much, because I guess it was those I designated, plus France and Germany, and probably this is it. Right. And certainly between then and the first Greek package, which I remember being in early 2010, yes, it did feel, again from the outside, it felt rather improvised, particularly that first package. And there was a big argument at the beginning about the involvement of the IMF which seemed to be driven very much from Berlin. Is that a fair characterization? Well, the first big question mark was, first, what is the reality of a Greek situation? And you had elections in Greece in late 2009. And as often, in fact, during this crisis, following an election, you would know better about the real figures. So the gravity of the situation of Greece appeared following the election of Papandreou. And twice, late 2009 and early 2010, the Greek government gave the real figures, which were much worse than the previous government had said. And had you anticipated something of that size? Not of that size, but we knew that something was wrong. Well, we guessed that something was wrong, despite the denial of the Greek authorities. And the first question was, what are the tools available to support a Euro area member? when the treaty seemed to forbid any kind of support. So there was a big question mark about what can we do? So the question was, do we have a tool within the European framework? Hungary had had a support facility, but it was not in the euro area. It was more complicated when you looked at the treaty to to see if you could do something. Could you have some external support from the IMF? The European leaders were very much against because it was seen as a kind of admitting some form of failure of a European supervision of its own Euro area members. So the heads were not in favor of having the IMF in. And then you had different views when you went down into different places and this position evolved. Germany was the first, I guess, to move especially the finance minister, Mr. Schauble, more in support of an IMF intervention, when Germany was much more reluctant to see a kind of European support. So, and France was probably the other way around. And all this evolved progressively when market pressure increased up to spring 2010. And it was quite hectic before you could agree on the first package, which was in May 2010, following a number of unsuccessful meetings with a creation overnight of what became EFSF and then the European Stability Fund, which was not foreseen when ministers gathered for another meeting, yet another meeting after a European summit. You had German elections also in between on the same weekend in a land. And it's also a feature you could see Back and again during these years, you had elections in some countries, in some regions, which had to be, you know, 
waited before people would be able to act. It was the same in, for Cyprus, for instance, in 2013, a few years ago, you had to wait for presidential elections before people would admit there was an issue. Well, and Portugal in 2011, that it actually happened during the campaign, right? And in fact, everywhere. So if you look at the way the group was able to manage this crisis, you have to also watch election dates in a number of countries and you understand better why from time to time it takes too much time to act because you have to wait for some elections to pass through. And again, during that time, as we just described there, there was this working group set up to deal with Greece. It seemed to me that during the crisis, certain institutions developed a sort of political weight one of which was the Eurogroup, another was the Eurogroup Working Group, which is the officials that prepare the Eurogroup mm -hmm. meeting. Again, is that right? Did the EWG become a much more significant power in 2010 onwards? Well, the job of the Euro Working Group chaired by Thomas Wieser was to prepare uh, ministerial and political decisions. So I guess that with the situation becoming more and more difficult and with dedicated tools, instruments to build, to fight the crisis. Yes, the Euro Working Group took more responsibilities, but always under the guidance of, you know, finance ministers and the political leadership and also heads of states, because you had Eurogroup meetings, but starting in late 2009, early 2010, every Eurogroup ministerial meeting was preceded or followed and or followed by heads of state meetings from the euro area or from the EU member states. So, yes, Euro Working Group took a bigger responsibility, but always preparing for political decisions. And did you feel there were times where, I mean, obviously the finance ministers and their officials knew the subject well, and by the time it got to heads of government, many of the heads of government didn't really know the issues. Did you feel in some ways that the summits got in the way of decisions or it just absolutely had to have that sign-off? No, it had to have that sign-off because views were eminently political decisions. If you have to bail out a country, if you have to decide about who's going to take the cost, taxpayers, shareholders, bondholders, maintaining the integrity of the euro area, supporting a member state under what conditions... All these are political decisions. So it was absolutely normal that heads of governments would be making these decisions, which had to go through parliaments also, most often. All of these decisions at some point had to go in front of parliaments. For Germany, it was often the case before going to a meeting, the finance German minister would have to go to the Bundestag before going to these meetings, which was not the case of French finance minister, but we have different systems in different countries. So, no, it was totally understandable that political leadership had to be embarked. And I would say that most of these political leaders did spend a lot of time understanding the issues. Now we could have different views. And this was all about visa decisions, even within countries from time to time, you had some discussions between various heads. Well, I mean, one of the things that was very striking throughout the crisis, but maybe most at the beginning, were the apparent differences between the German Chancellery and the German Finance Ministry. Was that a difficult thing for you to negotiate? It was an element to take into account. The French were, I would say, more aligned 
but it was a fact to take into account. Well, I mean, one thing related to that, two things related to that actually at the time were that it seemed to me that the French were trying to get two big items on the agenda at the same time, one of which was to try and get the Germans to reduce their twin surpluses, have a more rebalanced European economy, Mm -hmm. and the other was to try and persuade them to introduce eurobonds in some way. Did you ever feel that you could make progress on those issues or were they putting down markers as much as anything else? I think we had, I mean, between Germany and France, there were many issues of discussions, but always with a very good spirit of cooperation and discussion, I must say. So we did not agree on many things. For instance, Germany, I guess, was right to say that we needed some more fiscal discipline and France was extremely reluctant. Germany, or at least the finance minister, Mr. Schaubler, was adamant about having what he called private sector involvement, basically debt restructuring for a country which is facing fiscal difficulties. France was very reluctant because of the fear of contagion. And I guess that in France, we think that contagion is something which exists in Germany, not so much. You are more thinking about the moral hazard of supporting somebody in trouble. You don't have any innocent victim. Well, we think in France probably, or we thought at the time, that there can be such things as innocent victims because of contagion. And we were extremely sensitive to the fact that having debt restructuring at the early in the early phases of a crisis would trigger a run on you know other countries which could trigger a bigger crisis without the tools to face the crisis. So we were asking for accelerating the creation of solidarity funds, things like this, when Germany was saying, well, let's first put the house in order and then we will have the tools. So all these, I think, are good discussions because the truth is somewhere in between. And I would say the kind of miracle was that eventually, at the end, following many, many meetings and summits, we managed to find probably the proper balance between these different views. And it was good to have this kind of dialogue because if we had stuck only to the German view or only to the French view, I guess we would not have been finding a solution. I mean, from what you said there, it does sound, and it's how I remember it too, it was, the whole thing was very driven by France and Germany. Were other countries really involved with these big issues of principle? Well, you had the institutions first. The Commission had its views. The ECB had very strong views. And it's interesting also to see that during all these years, there was a kind of quiproquo between governments and the ECB. Governments needed to see the ECB playing its part, and the ECB could not act without a very strong action from governments. But the first Greek package was a good example of this. In May 2010, when governments decide to create this new tool, which did not exist, the EFSF, which became the ESM, the day after, the SMP from the ECB is activated. And you would find in some of the occasions in 2011, in 2012, of this dual action. So I'm not saying that no, the ECB is totally independent, but the ECB could act when governments were acting. And in major cases, this is exactly what happened. For instance, in 2012, when governments go into the banking union, 
VECB, Mario Draghi, is able to have his speech about whatever it takes in late July. Or in 2011, November, December, governments accept to go to the fiscal compact, better rules, I would say, stricter rules in terms of fiscal deficit, then the ECB is able to activate the uh, LTRO. And these things happen concomitantly at the same time, 24 hours or a few days. So the institutions played, of course, a critical role. And when you look at the countries, of course, kind of Germany and France were kind of leading the pack of like-minded countries. And so to be a bit caricatural, you had the North with Germany, the South with France. From time to time, the frontiers were not so clear. But of course, you know, Italy, Netherlands, Spain played a critical role also in pushing in a direction or another. And these were group decisions. It was impossible to move only if you had one of the big countries on board. Interesting what you said about the trade-offs between political decisions and the ECB response. You must have had an idea that if you did something, the ECB would respond. But how much did you know about, so for example, did you know the shape of the SM, the securities market program before it was done or just that if you do this, the ECB will respond? We had some good ideas. On each one of those, the LTRO, the... We had some good ideas in 2010, in 2011. In 2012, the whatever it takes, a speech of Mario Draghi in London was more of, at least for me, a surprise. I think it was a surprise for a lot of people. <laughs> well, speaking of surprises, I'd like to talk about the Deauville meeting between President Sarkozy and Chancellor Merkel, which really did have a huge market impact because it introduced the idea of the potential for governments to default for having PSI. How prepared were you for that? Was that were you surprised by that decision and by that trade-off? I think it has been described that it was a bit of a surprise. I mean, there was this discussion going on on is it wise to talk about private sector involvement when the markets are concerned about this perspective. Deauville was October 2010. At the time, you were benefiting from better market conditions since the summer, since the May program, and there was another meeting in July, I think. Market conditions were okay. So it seemed it was working. The Greek program was tough, but it was more or less working. But at the time, you had this campaign of, let's say, Germany on the necessity to have the possibility to have debt restructuring in the context of these programs. And you knew that some countries were facing pressures. At the time, it was Ireland, Portugal also. So Germany was pushing for this idea of private sector involvement. France was incredibly reluctant because we feared that this would trigger a crisis, basically. And there was another topic on the table, which was how to toughen fiscal deficits rules under the Stability Pact. And there was an idea to have some form of automaticity in sanctions if a country was not complying with fiscal rules, basically. This discussion was ongoing in the context of a task force, which was chaired by Hermann von Rompuy, who was chairing the uh, European Council. And these were open discussions. And we were all in a meeting in Luxembourg, in one of these task force meetings, 
when we heard that two heads of governments had decided that the discussions on the future framework would include the principle of private sector involvement and would not include automaticity in case fiscal rules would not be complied with. And this triggered renewal of the crisis. And I must say that we were not surprised. And that's the story. <laughs> well, as I remember, it basically triggered the denouement with Ireland. Well, spreads, I think, increased by 300 to 350 points in the following weeks, probably in a month. You had a hike in interest, market interest rates. And yes, I think it's the signal for bondholders was basically run away because if there is a problem, you're going to be trapped and you will be facing debt restructuring. So it's a very interesting example of how morale, I don't know how to say morale in English. Sentiment in this case? No, sentiments or what should be good in terms of equity, in terms of... Oh, confidence, I suppose. Faces a big contradiction with a principle of reality. Yeah. Being pragmatic, understanding how markets would evolve was fundamental at the time. And here politics was stronger than reality. And in fact, reality took its revenge. <laughs> and do you think that the two principals walking on the beach at Deauville, do you think they understood that anything like this could happen after their agreement? No, I think if it had been the case, they would not have been agreeing on this agreement. I guess at the time, because of the improving conditions of them on the markets, you could believe that talking of PSI would not create this upheaval. So it could have worked, but it was a very big risk, I guess. And so it maybe the situation would have been unraveling in any case. But it seems clear that this Deauville statement was not helpful. And is it true that the bad blood from Deauville led to your not becoming the chairman of the EWG? Was there a sort of punishment of the French for that? I've no idea. I've no idea. It was the story at the time, I just wondered. I, I, honestly, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, well, another big summit was the Cannes summit, which I think you were involved in preparing. Yes, early which, November 2011. Which was a... Huge event, and Papandreou came to the summit having called a referendum, and also there was pressure on Prime Minister Berlusconi at the time to involve the IMF in oversight of Italian budget making, as I remember. Could you give us some of the colour behind that? Yes. Well, what happened was that in autumn 2011, the situation had become bad again. In October, late October, you had a new agreement on a new Greek package. I think it was on the 26th of October. And this was a major achievement with huge discussions. And what happened is that Prime Minister of Greece, Mr. Papandreou, came back home in Athens and said he would submit this major agreement to a referendum, which was not at all expected. The agreement was not that there would be a referendum in Greece on this new aid package from, you know, EU member states, IMF, etc. And so this created a massive question mark on what could happen and markets became once again extremely nervous. And so the answer from heads of states of the euro area were to say, well, if you have a referendum, the referendum has to be on does Greece want to remain in the euro area? It cannot be, do you like the program? 
And yes, the prime minister was invited to join the Cannes summit with his finance minister, Mr. Venizelos, I guess. And it was quite difficult. It was quite difficult. The Cannes summit was tainted by this tough discussion. The result was that finally there was no referendum and Mr. Papandreou left his seat of prime minister to somebody else, Mr. Papademos, coming from a central banker. And there was also a huge pressure, yes, on Italy, where spreads were shooting to the roof. Mr. Berlusconi was there. And at the time, it was very close that, you know, Italy would be facing bigger difficulties. They were big, but some people had the feeling that it could get worse. And at the time, I remember that there was pressure on him to involve the IMF in oversight. Yes. Was that it? Was there any kind of institutional remedy to try and deal with his fiscal slippage? There was an agreement to have some kind of monitoring on Italy at the time. It was not a program because Italy refused to have a program and maybe it was not necessary. But there was an agreement to get some, you know, monitoring from the European institutions. I think the IMF was not involved at the time. Mm. And this followed some action of the ECB to be also supporting the Italian bond market with some commitments of Mr. Berlusconi to pass through some reforms on the Italian economy. Yeah, which didn't happen, as I remember. Which, I'm afraid, did not really happen. Yeah. <laughs> well, not long after that, in May 2012, Francois Hollande became the new president and you were kept on, which I think is fairly typical. Yeah. But also because I think they wanted to have some institutional memory of the crisis. Mm -hmm. Did you know Emmanuel Macron? Emmanuel Macron, I should add, was the chief advisor on economics to the president. Did you know him before? Yes, I knew Emmanuel Macron from the time when I was the advisor of Nicolas Sarkozy in 2007. Emmanuel Macron was the deputy head of commission led by Jacques Attali, which was supposed to work on how to unleash growth in the French economy. So Emmanuel Macron at the time was the secretary general adjoint of this commission. And so I did know him and had kept some contact with Emmanuel Macron in between. Yeah. Well, see, I remember at the time that he was very keen on a grand bargain with Germany. So the idea of French structural reform in return for measures to increase German consumption. Was this ever pushed diplomatically? And do you think it could have worked if it had been? Well, these discussions existed. When President Hollande was elected in spring 2012, we were once again in a time of renewed pressure. Spain was specifically because of pressures on the banking sector under very strong pressure. We had had also Portugal going on the program. So when President Hollande arrived with Emmanuel Macron as uh, secretary general adjoint de l'Elysée in charge of economic affairs, we were trying to find solutions. There was a G20 summit of heads in Los Cabos following a G20 financial ministerial meeting. And so we were trying to see how we could improve the general toolbox to face the crisis with a European fund, which would be more flexible, more proactive. And this is a discussion we had since 2010. As soon as we created the fund, we knew it should be able to act in a preemptive manner with a big discussion on the capacity to recapitalize banks, etc. So we had this discussion, can we support growth 
And this was the mantra of President Hollande, how can we do better to support growth? And these discussions on how can we avoid contagion and face systemic crisis. And this is the time where part of the solution came from the Banking Union project, which was a new step in managing the crisis because the first, I would say, stages of the crisis were more about fiscal policy, microeconomic imbalances, even if Ireland was a banking crisis in late 2010. But it became evident because of Spain in 2012 that the key was to find a different way to manage banking crisis in, in order to avoid the sovereign contagion. This was the summer 2012, and when the new French government was taking responsibility, the, the discussion focused on the banking stuff. And at the time, I remember you were reading Jean Monnet's memoirs and making the link between yes. banking union and the creation of the coal and steel community. Absolutely. Yeah. Could you talk us through that? Because it was a very interesting yes, idea. Yes, it's funny because you're right. I had been offered the memoir of Jean Monnet at the time, and what I had been just reading on the discussions between member states when they created the uh, community for coal and steel in 1951 in terms of transferring sovereignty to a European body in order to supervise what was at the time so critical, which was coal and steel, was exactly the same discussions we were having on transferring control of our banks to our European institutions. Same discussions, exactly the same discussions. And it's quite fascinating to see that in maybe two or three months, between May and July 2012, we collectively decided to create a totally new framework to supervise European banks with very few people formalizing ex ante what would become banking union. We didn't use the, bank, the terms banking union in the political discussions. I think Mario Draghi did deliver a speech sometime in May about banking union, but when you went to finance ministers or heads of states, it was more about do we have a supervisory mechanism in order to allow direct recapitalization of banks. This is how it was born, in fact, in the political landscape. And then it was complemented by some other dimensions with the resolution mechanism and the discussion about bank deposits. So in 2014, you left the Treasury and joined Orange, and you beat the most acute stage of the Greek crisis in 2015. <laughs> At the time, were you relieved to be out of it, or did you miss it? No, I was, I think I was, I joined, as you say, Orange in summer 2014, and I was concentrating very much on my new job in a fascinating sector, which is the telecom industry in Europe. And so I was, you know, watching, of course, with interest what was happening. And my successor, Bruno Bézard, with the team was working hard to find yet another answer to yet another crisis in Greece. But I think I had, you know, jumped to another issue and I was very much supporting my ex-colleagues, but they were, I was confident they would find a solution. Well, to wind up, I mean, now you have perfect hindsight and eight years out of the business. What do you think that you helped build has worked and what do you think hasn't? I think what worked is that we avoided an explosion of the euro area, which was possible. The exit of Greece in November 2011 was not something which was impossible, and it happened again. So I think we were successful to maintain 
the integrity of the euro area, which I think is an asset and a big support in troubled times. We are talking now in 2022 when 10 years later we see we have war in Europe. And we see also, I guess, that exiting from the European group provides probably more problems than answers. I'm thinking of my British friends. So I think what we were successful to achieve at the time was to find the answers, create new instruments, which are consistent with the monetary union. We need to do better in terms of, I would say, fiscal union. And we did make some progress, including more recently at the time of the pandemia. So this was, I think, good. Banking union, I think, is a strong asset also, yet not totally done. And I think what was interesting was to make sure that people with different views were able to reach, you know, a joint approach of a massive crisis. And this is first of all the case of, you know, Germany and France, where we have different cultures, different histories, a different approach to the rule of law, maybe different type of constraints, different perceptions of how markets can drive and put pressure on various players. So we were successful to achieve all this. Probably the, what was not done enough was it. all this was partially incomplete. You can decide to see the water, the glass, half full or half empty. I have a tendency to think it was half full, but there was part of it which was half empty. And probably it's a pity that we were not able to seize the opportunity of a crisis to deliver more a more comprehensive approach. Jean Monnet, you were talking about Jean Monnet. He was saying that, you know, people can see the necessity of change only in times of crisis. So it was obvious that there was a necessity of change and we could have done better in going faster, avoiding coming back to the issue time and again. But I guess this is also, you know, it's democracy. You need to convince people. Everybody needs to agree, to go to parliaments, to explain it's difficult. So let's hope that in the future we'll do at least as well and probably better. Okay, vraiment Fernandez, thank you very much. Thanks to you. Mm -hmm.